This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. 75 years ago this month, December 23rd, saw the creation and unveiling of what some call the greatest invention of the 20th century, the transistor, unveiled at Bell Labs, the research arm of Mar Bell. It was a clunky-looking thing with two gold contacts on a plastic wedge pressed against a crystal of germanium. But that early transistor had a magical property. A voltage in one part of the device could control the electrons in another part of the transistor. It could be a switch or an amplifier. It was the first semiconductor. And that device and the ones that followed and improved on, it would become an essential part of modern life. Your cell phone today likely has billions, with it be, billions of transistors in it, and soon, soon to have trillions inside. Here to help put that anniversary in contact is Michael Reardon. He's a physicist, science historian, author of several books, including Crystal Fire, The Invention of the Transistor and the Birth of the Information Age, co-authored with Lillian Hoddison. Welcome back to Science Friday, Michael. It's been a few years. Yeah, it's been about 25 years, if I remember correctly. Yeah, we, we celebrated the 50th anniversary. Now we're back with 75. Well, take us back 75 years. You know, they used to say necessity is, is, is the mother of invention. Why was Bell Labs, the phone company, interested in creating a transistor at this time? Well, led by Mervyn Kelly, who was then the vice president of Bell Labs, they could see that uh, after World War II, there would be an enormous uh, need for telephones. In fact, uh, I think he projected that if uh, they did nothing else using their old electromechanical switches, that they would need to hire all the women in the United States to serve as operators. No kidding. So they were looking for something to get beyond these switches and uh, vacuum tubes uh, and thought that the solution would occur in solid state physics. So he set up a solid-state physics group at Bell Labs just after World War II, headed by the theoretical physicist William Shockley. And Shockley gathered not just physicists, but chemists and engineers, electrical engineers in particular, into a multidisciplinary group uh, to study uh, solid-state physics and how it might improve communications. And out of that group, two of them, physicists uh, John Bardeen, and Walter Bratton came up with the first transistor, the point contact transistor, on December 23rd, 1947. Now, the interesting part of that story, if I recall, is that Bratton and Bardeen created a transistor that Shockley was not looking for, right? A different transistor than he had in mind. Yeah, Shockley was trying to come up with what is called a field effect transistor. And in fact, you know, in modern life, uh, all the billions of transistors on uh, at least my microchips in this computer are field effect transistors. But uh, there was a problem with field effect transistors. There would be a layer of electrons on the surface that would prevent the field from getting inside and influencing what was happening with the electrons and holes. Holes are like the absence of electrons in a crystal. And Bardeen and Ratten uh, came up with a way to get beyond that by putting the uh, two sharp points close together on a germanium surface, not silicon. They were working with germanium, which was a lot easier to work with, uh, and injected holes into the innards of that slab, thereby influencing what was going on, the currents that were flowing beneath. Hmm. 
Was there a breakthrough and aha moment that made this all possible? Well, uh, I think it was a series of uh, small breakthroughs happening all through the month of December, one after another. I can't really point to one great breakthrough there. It was just uh, the combination of Bardeen's theoretical insight and Bratton's uh, experimental dexterity that made it possible. Bardeen realized that there were these objects called holes. That was not by no means common knowledge in those days in 1947. But he hmm. was the one who uh, thought of minority carrier injection, that holes were being injected into the, in the innards that made it all possible. Now, if you look at patents, there are claims around transistor-like devices even before then. So what's the catch? Well, uh, there was a patent by Julius Lilienfeld going back, I think, to 1930. He was not a Bell Labs person. He was a physicist. He never, as far as I can tell, or historians can tell, he never made one of these devices. But it really was uh, the field effect transistor. So Shockley could not have claimed a patent on the field effect transistor. And let me add that he felt he was being scooped by his own employees or members of his group, I should say. And so uh, starting on about uh, New Year's Eve at that party that same year, he went away and started uh, working in his hotel room to try to come up with an alternative device that he could patent and claim as his own. And that led to the junction transistor, which was a lot more easily manufactured device. Right. And, and in fact, uh, Shockley would go on to fame on his own, would he not? Oh, yeah. His co-workers said that Shockley could virtually see what was going on with electrons inside matter. You know, he, he really deserved his part of the credit. He just had difficulty sharing it with others. Yeah. yeah and in fact, there's a very famous picture on the anniversary, a very famous picture of the three of them gathered around a transistor and a microscope if I remember it correctly. And it's Shockley who's sitting there as if he's working on the transistor, but he never really did any of that, did he? No, he was uh, terrible at the uh, at the lab bench. And I, in that picture, I can recall uh, Bratton has a grimace on his face uh, as if to say, what is this guy with this theorist, William Shockley, doing looking in my microscope? Yeah. And before there were transistors, we all back in the day knew there were vacuum tubes, right? Well, how was this different? What could it do that a vacuum tube could not? Well, it was a lot smaller and it didn't generate heat. I mean, vacuum tubes are pretty uh, sophisticated devices by the end of the, the 1940s. I remember that it took a while before transistors were able to surpass them in high-fidelity recording, for example. But uh, the fact that they generated heat, that they burned out, that they took up so much space, that they were difficult to manufacture, uh, I think ruled them out uh, as miniaturization became important, both you know, commercially and to the U.S. military. Mm -hmm. And of course, then that led to the famous transistor radio of the 50s, right? Yep. And, and the Japanese were very much involved in the early transistor radios. Uh, that was because they were, they were prohibited from producing, after World War II, from producing any defense 
uh, capabilities. And so they sunk it into commercial stuff like transistor radios. Yeah, the, the beginnings of Sony have to do with the first uh, Japanese transistor radio, which came in in the mid, I think about 1956, just after the first, the very first transistor radio produced by Texas Instruments, the TR1. And what's also interesting about that and, and, and what Bell Labs did is Bell Labs invented it, but they did not keep the intellectual property secret. They realized how big an invention this was and, and, and were willing to let other people, other countries share in that knowledge, right? Yeah, they realized that even with all the intellectual capital that they had at Bell Labs, that uh, important discoveries were going to occur elsewhere. And so they licensed it pretty liberally up until 1956 when there was a consent decree that said they had to make the original transistor patents uh, you know, available free of charge. Okay, but they, they were on that road anyway. I didn't think that made much difference. They were interested in using the transistor to improve communications. And there are many other applications that they were not interested in. For, for example, hearing aids. Before the transistor, people had to carry a big package on their belt with uh, vacuum tubes and batteries and then lines going up into their ears to have, have hearing aids. I've actually got hearing aids right now. They're totally self-contained. They've got a microchip in them that I don't know how many billions of transistors are on them. You mentioned that that first transistor was made out of germanium. Why was then a switch made to silicon? The driving force for silicon was mainly the military. Uh, germanium, although it was really easy to work with, suffered from the fact that its performance varied with temperature. It got up to about five, 75 degrees centigrade. They stopped working altogether. And the military uh, could not tolerate that. So they were pushing hard in the mid-50s for silicon transistors. I mean, they were willing to pay $100 per transistor. We're, we're also talking about the age of Sputnik and rocket launches, and the, the military wanted to shrink things down, needed tiny little devices. Yeah, oh, definitely. And I mean, uh, you know, the Russians, I think, used vacuum tubes in the first few Sputniks. But they had the enormous thrust capacity of their rockets. You know, the United States, and I remember the first, you know, the Vanguard uh, uh, collapsing on the launch pad. You know, the United States was way behind in thrust capacity in the mid-50s, so it really needed to lighten the load, and the uh, transistors allowed them to do that. Let's talk about what's actually going on in the device itself. You mentioned it briefly, but let's talk about there being different kinds of transistors. The first device was called, as you mentioned, a point contact transistor, but the ones that, that are so present today are largely field effect transistors. What's the difference? Well, in the field effect transistor, which was the original conception of Lilienfeld and Shockley, you have a metal contact on the surface. And below that, you have silicon dioxide. That's the oxide layer on silicon. And below that, you have silicon. And the actual electrical activity takes place inside the silicon. But uh, you need to bring, uh, if you're going to change the behavior underneath that silicon dioxide insulating layer, you've got to bring in a field 
you know, on that metal lead on top. And that that very, very fundamentally, very simply, I should say, is how the field effect transistor works. You know, there's charge coming from one side flowing to the other side. It can be electrons, it can be holes. And you influence that left to right flow by changing the field on the metal above the silicon dioxide layer. And that first device was called a point contact transistor because instead of bringing a wire, let's say a contact with an electrical field close to it and having the field effect the surface, you actually had to touch it, right, with the wire. Yeah, you had a wire sticking into a germanium surface. I don't think there was ever any point contact silicon transistors. <laughs> this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking with Michael Reardon, physicist and science historian about the invention of the transistor 75 years ago. And so the three of them shared a Nobel Prize, but their relationship was never repaired, I don't think, over the years because of Shockley trying not to give anybody else credit. Well, there was a lot of uh, you know grief in that uh, group. And I think uh, Bardeen eventually left and uh, took up a professorship at the University of Illinois. Uh, because he just couldn't continue to work for Shockley. That must have been... But I think by the time they all shared the Nobel Prize, they began uh, coming together again. Uh, you know, when you're leading up to the Nobel Prize, there's a lot of uh, grief uh, or, you say, anxiety that, gee, maybe I'm not going to win it. Right. And that uh, creates barriers. Uh, but after they were, and I think justifiably, when they all shared the 1956 Nobel Prize in Physics. I think that rivalry um, at least dissipated. Do, do you think they anyone really understood at that time how significant that invention would be, how ubiquitous it would be, how important it would be to creating the world we have today? I don't think anybody did. Let me just give you some numbers, if I may. You know, you know, in December 1947, there was exactly one transistor. In the entire world, there are now something like 20 sextillion. Now, what's that? Well, that's uh, 20 billion trillion transistors in the world. And that's about 3 million transistors per square foot of land surface, you know, all over the entire world. 3 million transistors per square foot. Now, there are 114 billion transistors in the M1 chip in my computer that allows me to talk to you right now. And they're shrinking, they're shrinking all the time, aren't they? They're putting more and more transistors on chips all the time. And that's uh, a good point because, you know, how small you can make the transistor determines how many transistors you can put on a single chip and how powerful it is. I think uh, the leader in that field is Taiwan Semiconductor. They're trying to get down to three nanometers per the size of each transistor. And I just read that they're planning to spend $14 billion to try to do so in Arizona. Yeah, they're moving some production. Yeah. As opposed to uh, the mainland Chinese can get down to 14 nanometers. The Russians can get down to about 28 nanometers. So, and that tells you the sophistication of the electronics that they can produce. And even though the three shared a Nobel Prize, they didn't make much money off of it, did they? <laughs> No, the, uh, I think uh, they got paid $1 by Bell Labs for the rights to the transistor. Wow. 
Uh, that's a good place to wrap up to see to see how much it was worth to them compared to how much it is worth to the world. Thank you, Michael, for for your work and for taking time to be with us today. Thank you very much, and uh, I hope everybody will uh, read about this in Crystal Fire, which is still in print after twenty five years. Michael Reardon is a physicist, science historian, and author of several books, including the aforementioned Crystal Fire, The Invention of the Transistor, and The Birth of the Information Age, co-authored with Lillian Hoddison.